I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Bob McDonald joins me again. He's just published a new book, The Future is Now Solving the Climate Crisis with Today's Technologies. The book is a lot more optimistic than most books on the climate emergency. Mr. McDonald lays out the myriad sources of energy that could uh, wean us off fossil fuels. A lot of these alternative energy sources like wind, solar, and geothermal have been available for years now. And because they're not enough, we need to look at other forms, such as nuclear, biofuels, hydrogen, and carbon capture. And uh, such sources like wind and solar, they can uh, take up less space and can be cheaper. Nuclear, for example, is much safer today than it was 40 or 50 years ago. The technology is there and is developing rapidly. A lot of political will is needed too, and Bob addresses that in his engaging and highly readable book. As I tell him in our conversation from last week, you can't help read the book without hearing his inimitable voice. Since 1992, Bob McDonald has hosted CBC Radio's Quirks and Quarks. He celebrates his 30th anniversary as host later this month. He is an officer of the Order of Canada and has received countless honors and awards for his distinguished work as a print and broadcast journalist covering science and space. This uh, new book is published by Viking. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Bob McDonald. Mr. McDonald, good morning. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Where, where have I reached you today? I am in Victoria, B.C., on Vancouver Island, where I live. And you tell the story in the book about uh, the sailing adventure that you found yourself on. I guess it was in the St. Lawrence River, is that right? Oh, my wind adventure or my tide adventure? The one, I have a few sailing adventures. Yeah, the, the one where you hit the rock. Ah, yes. Um, the uh, sailing adventure, that one was in uh, on Lake Erie, actually. Oh, I see, yeah. Yeah, and um, but, you know, it's uh, it's all part of the... Um, uh, Part of the adventure of I put I put a lot of my I put a lot of my adventures into the book because I'm trying to say that I've experienced the natural forces of the wind of the tides of the waves yeah. and the sun uh, through my own experiences and that's how I tried to spice up the book a little bit so it's not all just science indeed indeed so the the story is in in the book that you hit a rock and you could do one of two things at that point you could say change the meter so that that you could take in more water. Or um, you could make a, um, a more uh, um, secure fix, but that would take mm-hmm. a, a few more days, and, and so you'd be uh, pausing your, your adventures, if you will, for, for a bit <laughs> while that gets repaired. It, 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 this is very illustrative of, of what you're saying in the book, that, that um, because we're always looking for the quick fix when it comes yes. to energy. Um, and if it's not the quickest, we're looking for the cheapest. Uh, these things in the long run don't serve us well, do they? No, and I, I was using that as an analogy because whenever I get on my boat, the first thing I do is I check the bilge to see if there's any water in it. Mm-hmm. And if that water is rising, which it did after I hit this rock because I punched a hole in the boat, um, then I've, I've got to I, I got to fix it. And uh, so that's like the rising temperature of our planet right now. We know it's going up, just like the water level in a boat on the inside. So. Are you going to put up with a short-term fix, like maybe put a bigger pump in there to, yeah. to pump out more water? That'll keep it afloat. Or are you going to fix the hole? And we've been doing a lot of short-term fixes with the climate. We've been you know, not really getting to the source of the problem, which is our carbon emissions. And so that's, that's really part of the way we need to approach this, is to get at the source. And I guess one of the reasons why we're not um, doing anything proactive is, is, is we don't want our lifestyles to change a great deal. 
Um, and, and so um, you tell us in the book that, that, that these fixes are at hand, whether they be, you know, solar power, fossil fuels, wind power. We'll, we'll touch on some of them later. But um, these things are at hand, and these things are available, aren't they? Yes, and that was a delight when I was doing the research for this book, is that all the technology to go green already exists. We know how to capture the energy of the sun and the wind and the waves and the tides and geothermal. It even grows on trees if we want it. Mm-hmm. And the technology is there, and it's getting better. And it was a delight for me when I was uh, interviewing scientists who are working in these different fields that are in the book. They were all excited because there's improvements coming to them. They're, they're getting even better. So when it comes to changing our lifestyle, sure, there will still be cars, but instead of having a fossil fuel-burning combustion engine under the hood, it'll be an electric motor that either runs on a battery or runs on a hydrogen fuel cell. But there'll still be cars. So our lifestyle doesn't have to change. We just change the way we do things. And our energy will be coming from different sources, many different sources, including your own home, yeah. rather than coming from big centralized nuclear plants or fossil fuel burning plants. So we're going to be capturing energy everywhere, but our lifestyle can continue. So we don't need to, to worry about having to go back to the trees or, or back to the caves. It's not like that. It's, it's an evolution of the technology that's around us, and we've done that with other things. Look at your phone. When I was a kid, the phone was attached to the wall, and I had to stand beside it to talk. <laughs> and <laughs> right. That's all it did was talk. And yeah. now your phone's in your pocket. Look what it can do. It's, it evolved. It's better if it's more capable. So that's what's happening. Our technology is evolving. The fossil fuel age is ending. We're in a new industrial revolution with these clean alternatives, and I really believe it can happen because the technology is there. So getting away from fossil fuels, though, I mean, it takes a great deal of social will. I think a lot of us are, are, are there. The politicians aren't there for the most part because there's a lot of resistance, especially from those with a financial interest in them. Um, yeah. how, how does that attitude change, Bob? Well, there, there's, this, there's this idea that we have to abandon the, the fossil fuels altogether, cripple the economy, and put a lot of people out of work. The fossil fuels are not the enemy, and I'm not trying to make an enemy out of the oil industry either. It's the way we've been burning the fossil fuels. The combustion engines, um, just setting fire to fossil fuels creates incomplete combustion. Now, this drove the Industrial Revolution. It was great. You know, it was, for 150 years, it's been terrific. But we call fossil fuels hydrocarbons because they're long chains of carbon atoms with hydrogen stuck to them. Like uh, I like to think of it like Christmas bulbs on a string. Yeah. And when you, when you burn it, yeah. you know, the bulbs come to light, it's, it's the hydrogen that's coming off. So the oil companies are now looking at what if we just burn the hydrogen, get the hydrogen out of the oil or the natural gas or whatever, and sell that. Because when you burn hydrogen, it just combines with oxygen, you get H2O, which is water. And there's a, there's a company in Saskatchewan that's actually looking at a technique, and they've proven that it works, of getting the hydrogen out of oil while the oil is still in the ground. So you leave the oil in the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you pump up the hydrogen and burn that, or use hydrogen as a storage. So the oil companies don't have to go out of business. They can just deliver us a different energy product. And hydrogen is just one. And I, I, I actually, I'd like to put out a challenge to all the young engineering students in our universities and colleges and scientists to come up with another way to get energy out of oil, because oil is incredibly dense. It's, it's mm. got so much energy in such a small space. We're not going to let that golden egg go. So rather than make it an either-or situation, let's evolve the oil technology. Evolve the technology, 
for burning oil. We haven't done that in 150 years, but we've done it with so many other forms of technology. Let's get on with it. Yeah. You mentioned in the book a, a number of crises, um, uh, London, say, in 1952, the, the smog in, in Los Angeles in the 70s. Um, COVID is a recent example, um, where something happens, and, 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 and that's the impetus for change. And we yeah. as, as human beings change very quickly, don't we? We don't realize we that, do. I guess, sometimes, right? We do. And look at COVID as an example. Uh, here we had a, a global threat to humanity, this invisible virus that was killing people by the thousands. It ended up being about 5.5 million people died from COVID. Science identified it. Science said we have a solution. It became an international effort, including Canada, biological labs all over the world tried to figure out how the virus infects the lungs and, and how to fight it. The government stepped in and supported that. And the scientists said, you know, we got to stay away from each other because this thing spreads through the air. So then we put in these mandates, you know, social distancing, wear a mask, wash your hands and all that. And the public bought into it. Now, there were some protests against that, yeah. but they were a small minority. But generally, we did it, and hundreds of billions of dollars worldwide were thrown at, at COVID. And they were to, remember when they said we got to flatten the curve? Yeah, we got to flatten. We did. Mm. We flattened the curve. We did it more than once. So there you got an example where science, the government, and the public all got together, and we did it. And we did it in two years. That's astounding. Yeah. So let's do it with this other curve that's rising called global temperature. Let's flatten that curve. We've been talking about doing it for decades, and it's just not happening. And the government's made, you know, we've had these United Nations conferences on climate change. We've had 26 of them. And every time they say, yeah, we're going to do this, but then and the emissions are still rising. Yeah. So the change is not going to come from the top down. I don't think this way. Uh, I think it's going to come from the bottom up. Because people are finding, are you noticing there are more electric cars on the road now? Indeed, yeah. Than there were before? Right. Yeah, because more automotive companies are coming up with them. So the cost is going to come down, and people like them. They, they, they drive better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're faster. And they're saving on gas. The cost of gas is going up. Yeah. The cost of the alternatives is coming down. So it's going to work its way in. It's good business. It's, it makes economic sense. And, and the green sector is one of the fastest-growing sectors of the economy. So I believe it's really going to happen if we just keep the momentum going. You know, you write in the book, Bob, about the nuclear. And, and I think um, when, we, when we hear that or see that, you know, we like to think the worst, I guess. We, we like to think yep. of Three Mile Island, China Syndrome. You know, some, some people yep. might even think of a mushroom cloud. Um, yep. You write in the book about small nuclear and, and how that would work. And, 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 the, and, and that's what surprised me as I was reading the book is how safe it is now. Yes, it is. And let me tell you something about Three Mile Island, by the way. Nobody died in Three Mile Island. Mm. Nobody died in Three Mile Island. And that reactor did melt down. There was, it was a human error. Yeah. And it did melt down. But the reactor did what it was designed to do, and all the melt was contained within it. And eventually they cleaned that up, and they, they got it out. It was unfortunate that the movie The China Syndrome came out three days before. Mm. And the, the movie said, oh, no, this stuff's going to melt right through the earth and go to China, and it's really horrible, <laughs> and everybody right. remembered the movie. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. in fact, nobody died in Three Mile Island. They, they had it under control. Now, what's happening, though, is um, there is, you're right, there is a big public fear of uh, nuclear power. But the new direction is to go small. They're called small modular reactors, and it's a new technology. In some ways, it's new, but it's also been powering 
uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and uh-huh. submarines and Russian icebreakers for decades. And when you think about an aircraft carrier, it's got, what, 3,000 people on it? And there's a nuclear reactor right in the middle of them all, at, at its sea. And they've had a, an incredible safety record. So that's the technology that they're talking about now. You have a small reactor with a core that's, that's only about the size of an office desk. And it comes completely sealed up in a big steel container that you can put on a truck. Mm-hmm. And you deliver it to small towns in the north, for example, and you bury it underground. So nobody gets at it. And you don't touch the thing. It's completely sealed. You just get the energy out of it. It runs for about 30 years. Then you take it out, you send it back to the factory, and you put a new one in. And they can't melt down because the new technology uses a fuel that's already a liquid. So it can't Mm. melt. It's already a liquid. And these things are, are far, far safer. But what we need is really frank and open discussion between the nuclear industry and those who are afraid of it to explain the technology and say, Here's how it works. And when you look at nuclear compared to other ways that we produce energy, nuclear actually has the best safety record. It has the best safety record. It's just that when things go wrong, they go very wrong. And uh, But there's there are other ways. And the thing about nuclear, not only is it emission-free, but it provides baseline power. That's 24-7. It's always there when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. So we have to reconsider nuclear. Yeah. You mentioned wind just a moment ago. Um, you know, yeah. we, we like to think that, that um, uh, like a, a windmill, if you will, or a wind farm needs to be in a really windy place. Um, as I read in your book, um, it doesn't have to, does it? Well, it can be. Uh, the, the windmills have, have evolved. Uh, size matters when it comes to wind technology. And they have grown to such gigantic proportions, it's hard to imagine. The, the tallest one in the world is 260 meters high. That's yeah. almost the height of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Yeah. It's two and a half times taller than the Peace Tower on the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. And one turn of the blade can produce enough electricity to power a house for two days. And the thing is that these are 12, 15 megawatt machines. They can they can provide power for uh, 15, 16,000 homes. One of them can do that. And the idea is, instead of having a whole field of smaller ones, you just need a few of these giants. Mm. And there's the, in Europe, they're putting them offshore. They're putting them out, out to sea, where the winds are more consistent, and they're out of sight of land, so people can't complain about them being ugly or anything like that. Yeah. So that's, that's the future in wind, is, is a few gigantic turbines and uh, instead of fields of them, so it's and and the blades are amazing. They're designed like airplane wings now. They actually fly through the air. They're mm. um, they're lifting bodies. So there's uh, there's a lot happening there, and you can put them in many different places. They don't need, as you say, they don't need as much wind as they used to because they're so gigantic. And as much land, which is which is I guess the the thing that a Correct. lot of people like to complain about. Um, in yeah. terms of storing energy, how good are they? Uh, well, storage is a whole, I have a whole chapter on yeah. storage, and, uh, you know, we've got battery storage. Tesla now makes these big battery packs that can keep a, a town running for a few hours. They're very expensive, but that's one way you get instant power. But there are other ways to uh, to store energy. There's a, a, a company in Ontario that uses compressed air. They have an abandoned mine that they, they just sealed up, and they pump air into this thing, and they, they just keep pumping and pumping, and they have such a huge volume under pressure that it stores the energy like a balloon. And when you need it, you just allow the air to blow out, and it blows through a turbine and generates electricity, so you can store energy in air. Um, there's a uh, group in Norway 
they store their energy in sand. You can have you ever been to a tropical beach and, and you go out on your feet in hot sand? You know, it's, it's terrible, right? Yeah. <laughs> it burns yeah. your feet. Yeah. You can heat sand up to a thousand degrees and it won't melt. Mm. So they 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 dig these big pits, fill them with sand, put pipes in there, and heat them up to like a thousand degrees, and they're getting seasonal energy storage because they're getting dark nights like we do in the winter time. So they're they're heating local homes from this sand that stays warm for months. I mean, that's, that's energy storage there. So there are lots of ways to, uh, to store energy so that we can have consistent uh, energy available, like you say, when the wind doesn't uh, blow and the sun doesn't shine. Yeah. Speaking of when the sun doesn't shine in terms of solar, because you write in, in the book about solar power, um, a lot of these other forms of, of energy, we, we've talked already about wind, we've talked about nuclear, it, it really depends on where you live. I mean, I asked you off the top where, you're, where you, you are today, and you said in Victoria, I'm in Vancouver. Um, there are some things that will work here that won't work elsewhere, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's research going on right now at Simon Fraser University measuring the tidal currents here because we have the Gulf Islands. And when tides flow between islands, you get currents that are mm. quite strong. They run like rivers. I'm a sailor. I have a sailboat here. And uh, I've run into those. And sometimes you, you just don't go through them because they're so strong yeah. that you end up going backwards. So we can put turbines in the water to capture that, that energy. Scotland is in, uh, looking into this because they have the Orkney Islands. And the idea that they have, um, in the past, if you wanted to capture tidal energy, it was usually a dam that you build, and the tide would fill it up at high tide, and uh -huh. then you'd let it yeah. drain out at low tide. But what they're doing now is they have these things that look like submarines or, or boats with giant propellers hanging off the sides, and they anchor them in a tidal current, and the propellers, instead of driving the boat, are driven by the tidal current. And that generates electricity. You can put these things anywhere. So we've got tidal energy that we could tap into here that we're not. And um, we also have geothermal energy in our mountains. There's, there's always uh -huh. a problem of transporting the heat because it tends to be in remote areas. And then uh, here in Victoria, where I am, we get a lot more sun than you do in, uh, in Vancouver, so we could have more solar. And there's, there's an interesting thing happening with solar that, that I got excited about. Yeah. It doesn't have to just be those big black, Panels oh, yeah. that you see yeah. on rooftops yeah. and all of that. There are these new class of materials they're called perovskites, and you can print them into thin films that are so thin you can see through them. Mm. So you can put them on plastic, or, or you can put them on windows. So you can have windows that are slightly tinted, you can still see through them, but they're generating electricity. And you think, if you're in Vancouver, look at all the glass buildings yeah. that you have downtown. That's a huge surface area. That's an enormous surface area that could be used for generating electricity instead of covering an agricultural field. Yeah, that's and even they're talking yeah, they're talking about perovskite paint. Mm. So if you, you paint your house, the outside of your house can be generating electricity. Or the idea that I find really funny, if if you had perovskite paint in your living room, you could recycle the light in your house. Because you turn on your lights, you illuminate the room, yeah. and some of that light's going to hit the walls, and the walls will turn it back into electricity. What a neat idea! Recycling yeah. light, I love it. Indeed, so, indeed. So solar energy is going to be everywhere. Yeah, it's like it's, it's like the, the the wind farms. We we think that that solar will take up a lot of room, but I mean, it, it really is a fascinating part of the book where you talk about these these myriad ways. Um, yes. that, that things are getting smaller. Um, the, the other thing that I was, as I was reading your book, Bob, was I got a little more conscious about uh, where energy comes from, and, and 
I couldn't help but think that that uh, if more people were were realized how we got our energy, we'd be better in terms of usage. The, the other thing I was thinking about as I was finishing the book was um, because there are so many ways that, that you talk about in the book about uh, how we can uh, harness energy in the future or even now, um, we'll waste more because, you know, that's just those are our habits, right? Um, yes. do, do you think we'll not feel as bad when, when, when energy is cheaper and, and readily available, that we'll just end up using more than we need to, say? Yeah, I think we'll become more conscious of not only where the energy is coming from, but how much we're using. They did an interesting experiment in the Empire State Building in, in New York City, where they did a big renovation on it to uh, save, save energy, which they did. Uh-huh. And uh, But they also put monitoring stations at each of whoever the, the renter is of whatever floor, they have a monitoring station that says how much energy you use that day on a daily basis, and it keeps track of it. And they found that when people realize how much they're using, they actually save more. So they do mm. things like turn off the lights when you leave a room kind of thing, yeah. turn off all the computers at night and that, that kind of stuff. And that, that contributed to the savings. We can also think about how much we drive. You know, do you need to drive so much? If we have really good public transit, if we make cities more walkable, um, and, and have more boulevards. One of the things that happened during COVID, at least here in Victoria, where I live, a lot of the restaurants were allowed to have uh, sidewalk patios to keep social distancing, yeah. and they still do now. Well, that's great. That, that turns the, the sidewalks into more pedestrian-friendly places and, and restrict the, the, the number of cars downtown. And, and now we have um, people riding e-bikes, uh, instead of a regular bicycle, so more people are now riding bicycles because of these e-bikes. This is all great, you know, because it's cutting down on the amount of energy that we're using. So our consumption, you're right, you know, it can certainly come down a long way without sacrificing our lifestyle. Indeed, indeed. Um, th- that's the key, isn't it, though? We, we can't be idle. We can't just hope for good news. We have to, to, to do our part in, in yes. small and, and big ways sometimes, right? Yeah, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. It's not just the technology. It's, it's got to be a social issue, it has to be a political issue, and it has to be an economic issue. And they can all work. The green sector is one of the fastest-growing sectors of the economy. If you invest in it, uh, you, know, you provide jobs. Um, if you take the technology up, you're actually saving money because fuel prices are going up. Yeah. So you're, you're saving money. So it's, it's a win-win for everybody, I think. So it, it's, it just takes... You know the momentum. Like this is a good idea. Let's let's do it. And it would be it would be great if cities or towns could take on the challenge to let's have a competition. Let's have a green competition. We're going to be the greenest city in the country. Yeah. And here's how we prove it. You know, yeah. <laughs> and take pride in the fact that your city is is green for so many different reasons. Uh, in some areas they have solar. In some areas they have wind. In others geothermal. In others whatever. And 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 see how that comes. I, I'd like to see that an X prize for energy. Indeed. Um, you are um, later this month celebrating the 30th anniversary of uh, your hosting Quirks and Quirks. Um, do you have a sense, Bob, as, as to, to what the, the show has meant to Canadians all these years? Well, what's been interesting about it is uh, the ratings have never gone down. Mm. Uh, I've been hosting the show for 30 years, but the show's been on the, the air for, I think, 40, almost 45 years now. Yeah. And it's it's always been in the same time slot, and our ratings have never changed. Uh, other shows have come and go on, on either side of us. And that shows that people are interested in science, because that's all we do is the science. We don't do controversies very much. We just let the science stand on its own. And for me, it's been a huge, huge privilege to work on the show, because... Uh, I, I get to ride along on the cutting edge of our knowledge as we learn about the universe, and there's still so much we don't know. 
and it's, it's neat. And I talk to really smart people for a living, and every week is different. I, I can't tell you what's on next week's show. I don't know yet. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the beauty of it, and it's always exciting. And it doesn't matter if it's some small little thing about the sex life of an insect or, or if it's some big discovery out of the edge of the universe. It's all interesting. It's all new, and, and it's just been... It's just been really great. Yeah, I happen to be going out usually at that time that it's on, and so it's it's in whatever car I'm in, or if I'm, <laughs> I'm getting a lift from somebody, I insist that they put it on. And as I was reading this book, I, um, I couldn't help but hear your voice, and I'm sure you hear that a lot from people. <laughs> yeah, I know it's kind of funny to be recognized by my voice. When there's <laughs> more television, people would recognize my face, now it's my voice. Yeah. I, I always wanted one of those deep FM voices, you know, like you got a nice resonant deep voice. I never got that. Right? But uh, I guess it's distinctive enough that people can hear. But as long as they're interested in what I'm saying rather than just the quality of my voice, then I'm happy. <laughs> it, it, you bring such enthusiasm to it that, that I often find myself, if I'm going somewhere and I, I have to, to get out of the car, I'll wait until the segment's finished because I want to hear <laughs> what, what happens. Oh, well. Well, good, then we're doing our job, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and, and, and I'm enthusiastic because I'm interested in it. I find it fascinating. Science is just such a great way of looking at the world. You know, you put on these scientific glasses and you look around at the same world that everybody else does, but you see it in this incredible detail. You know, you, you, you look at a leaf and you can see the photosynthetic process going on there within the cells. You look at the sky and you can look out to the edge of the universe. Or, you know, I, I look at our mountains here along the coast mm -hmm. and uh, over towards... I see the crumpled fender of North America as it slams into the floor of the Pacific Ocean because of plate tectonics. Mm. The, the North American continent is moving towards the west at about the speed your fingernails are growing, just a few centimeters a year, but the, the forces are so strong it shoved those mountains up. And it's, it's just an, incredible to see that, that process and see it through scientific eyes. And um, it just never ends for me, so it's, uh, it's, it's eternally entertaining. Indeed, and this book is, is an important one, and it's a, as I said uh, before we started, I, I enjoyed it a great deal because it's, uh, it gives one a great deal of hope and optimism, um, as in all the work that you do. Congratulations, Bob, on the book and, and uh, for 30 years on Quirks and Quirks. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. The book is called The Future is Now Solving the Climate Crisis with Today's Technologies. It's published by Viking. It's author Bob McDonald. Join me on the line from Victoria in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planto.